Good evening, church. So good to see you. As always, I love you and I appreciate you. Thank you for being part of our, our Wednesday night class. I, I was just sitting there thinking about how much I've enjoyed not only studying this with you, but how much I've enjoyed the feedback from you. Uh, I've had so many good conversations, maybe more good conversations based on this Wednesday night uh, series that, that I've had in a long time, uh, just about uh, successes that you've had in your life and, and victory that the Lord has been bringing you and, and, and good things that have been happening in your life because you are being intentional about, about resisting, resisting sin and thinking about how do we fight against, how do we resist sin. Um, and I hope that you have. I hope that you've seen progress. And I hope that we know. We started off this series talking about how we, we can we can resist temptation. We can, we can stand firm with the armor of God on us, that he has equipped us to be able to stand firm, that this isn't a losing battle. We, we are victorious in Jesus, and we can, moment by moment, be victorious over various temptations. That's not to say we're, we're going to be perfect or we are perfect, but it is to say that you can make progress in resisting sin and being the person that God is calling you to be by the power of the Spirit who lives within you. We won't have class next Wednesday night. Let me make sure I tell you that. So uh, we will have our Sunday singing this Sunday night, and then we won't have a midweek uh, service this coming Wednesday, a week from today. Uh, but then we'll wrap up this class, Lord willing, a week from next Wednesday, two weeks from tonight. So just to kind of review, if you've not been with us or, or you've slept since then, uh, the three enemies of our soul are the devil, the flesh, and what was it? The, the world, right? The devil, the flesh, and the world. And we've talked about how when we're resisting temptation, we are, we are fighting against, we are combating the devil, we are combating our own flesh, we are mortifying our flesh, we're putting to death the desires of our flesh, and we're also standing against, standing opposed to resisting the world. And we do this the way we, we resist, the way we combat, the way we go to war, is we align ourselves with the Spirit. We're filled with the Spirit. We walk by the Spirit. And we talked about a few weeks ago some of those spiritual practices by which we align ourselves, by which we align ourselves and are filled with the Spirit. We talked about things like reading Scripture, prayer, rest, praise, fasting, fellowship. I don't know if I, I said this to you. I've said I've gone through those six things several times the last few weeks uh, with different groups, but scripture, prayer, rest, praise, fasting, fellowship. And I, I've gone through those several times, and I was, I was uh, in Abilene a, a week or so ago. I don't know. It all kind of runs together, but I was doing a devotional with some college students there, and we were talking about these ideas that we're talking about in this class about resisting temptation and, and walking by the Spirit. And we were walking through these spiritual practices, and I was like, I know it sounds like I'm just saying, read your Bible and go to church, you know. That's kind of what I am saying, but, but it's, it is reimagining what does that mean. It is, it is rethinking and reframing what does that mean to read your Bible, Again, we can make that sound so very mundane and so very boring, but forgetting that the message of Scripture is infused with the breath of God, 
that the message of Scripture has the breath of God in it. That's what it means when we say that it is inspired by God, that it has God's breath in it, that this message of the Scriptures that has been handed down to us can help shape us and form us to remake us And that things like prayer, again, if we just think about praying as something on our to-do list, we're not reframing it the way the gospel teaches us to reframe it, that, that when we pray that the Spirit of God is participating with us in our prayer life, drawing us into greater intimacy with the Father and with the Son, that all of these things that, again, you may have grown up doing, but you're not thinking of them as this is the way you wage war. This is the way you wage war against the flesh. This is the way you wage war against demons. This is the way you wage war against the world. You don't wage war with the weapons of the world. You wage war in prayer and in in resting in God. You, You wage war in praise, in worship, in fellowship, in scripture reading. This is the way that that you are filled up with the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit and you rely on God to help you to overcome and to resist the world. Now, we keep using the phrase the world. Let me just kind of review one of the things we said last week. The world is the place That's not even really a good word, the place. We're talking about all human societies, right, in aggregate, all the sum total of all human societies, not one particular society, but all human societies where fleshly living, living that is according to the desires of our flesh and not in accordance with God's will, where that fleshly living is normalized, where it's become normal. But that's just the way things are done. And when we say that, we mean things like this. One, idolatry, right? Worshiping anyone or anything that is not Yahweh. Worshiping anyone or anything that is not Yahweh. So can we look around at our society? Can we look around at our culture? Can we look around at our quote-unquote world and say that idolatry has been normalized? Maybe not in a traditional sense, right? Maybe not in the sense that that bowing down to a statue. Maybe we don't see that kind of thing all the time, although that does exist even in our our neighborhood and community and world. But, But the worship of the taking created things and making them ultimate things, where we give our life to created things that are good things but aren't ultimate things, that's idolatry. Paul even says that covetousness is idolatry. And so have we normalized idolatry in our culture? I think so. Number two, sexual immorality. Could could we, again, look around at our world and say that we've normalized sexual immorality? Yeah. Where marriage isn't honored the way that God would have us to honor marriage, and that that sexual relationship in marriage is not honored the way that God would have it to be, and where what Scripture calls immorality has become normalized so that it becomes a a joke or it becomes entertainment or it becomes something to be sought after or desired, pornography and and everything else all all around us so that it it even becomes part of the, the air that we breathe and the water that we drink. It's become so normalized to to sexualize and to over sexualize our culture. Number three, selfishness and greed. 
Is that worldliness? Has, has selfishness and greed become normalized in, in our culture? So that seeking after more and more and more and more and more stuff, more and more and more money, more and more and more wealth, so that we have far beyond our necessities. We're not even thinking about our necessities. Our necessities, for, for the most of us, are so far back, we, we don't even remember what that was like just to, just to need those things. For a lot of people, we, we've gone into the surplus and, and just wanting to accumulate more and more and more. And that idea of the mass accumulation of far more than we need has become normalized so that we don't even think of it as being something that is worldly. Number four, ethnic division and discrimination. Again, these aren't unique to our culture. These have been part of every worldly society, haven't they? Where people have prioritized their own ethnicity, their own nationality, their own culture, their own group, and have discriminated against people who speak different or or think different or look different and have discriminated against other groups of people. Number five, violence, enemies, infants, and everybody in between. Again, in in cultures from the beginning of time, hurting and harming people. We we talked last week about not just physical violence, but even verbal violence, what Scripture calls reviling each other. This is worldliness, hurting and harming human beings who are God's image bearers. And we've so normalized it. Again, Again, a lot of us don't even think twice about the violence that we entertain ourselves with because it's so normal. Number six, lawlessness and chaos. Doing what's right in our own eyes. And that's that's chaos, isn't it? It's chaotic to do what is right in our own eyes. We, we use the word sometimes culture. When we, talk about, when we talk about the world or we talk about societies, when we say a word like culture, what does culture mean? Culture is about traditions, right? Customs, uh, morals, values, norms, norms, things that are normal in, in a particular society. There's an interesting word that I've, I've been reading a lot lately, people have been using a lot, and it's anti-culture. And anti-culture is obviously the opposite of culture, and it's that which tears down traditions and customs and, and, and values and tears those things down, the things from the past, and saying, no, these traditions or these values or these customs, we need to do away with those kinds of things. And there, there's such thing as anti-culture. In fact, you might even say that there are some societies, and arguably we're, we're sort of moving into that as, as our society, it's possible for a whole society to, to not really be a culture, but for the entire society to be an anti-culture. To say, I don't want to share any values with anybody else. I only want my own values. I don't want customs with anybody else. I only want my own customs. I don't want traditions with anybody else. I only want my own traditions. And and traditions and customs that only exceed as far as you, that's not really culture, right? Culture has to be shared with other people. And so it's possible for an entire society to be an anti-culture, to really not have a shared culture, to to not share traditions and customs and values. But, But there's another word that I want us to think a lot about tonight, and that's a counterculture. 
A counterculture isn't an anti-culture necessarily. It's, a, it's a, an alternative culture. It's a group of people that live within a society but have values and customs and traditions that are an alternative to the mainstream dominant culture, right? And, and you, you see that in every culture. You see the dominant values, the, the dominant way of doing things, the dominant uh, traditions and customs, and then there might be a group that lives within that society, but they're a counterculture. They have their own values, they have their own customs, they have their own way of doing things. And that, that is what the church is called to be. We have the world, we have societies, and again, any society falls into this category that has values and customs and traditions, some of which are fine, but some of which do not align with the will of God, are not good for people that are toxic and corrupting, that, that appeal to the flesh. And again, we see that when we look around our society, and you can look at any society and see that. And in every city, in every nation, in every society, the church is supposed to exist as salt and light. Not an anti-culture to say, we don't want any culture, we don't want any traditions, we don't want any customs, but to present an alternative vision for human society an alternative vision for human society to say, what if, what if people lived like this? What if people lived like this? What would things be like if human beings could live and exist this way? Here's some of the benefits of the church being a counter-cultural community. Again, not an anti-cultural community. It's not that we're just railing against the culture and saying, you're so bad. That's not the idea here. The idea here is that we live as a counter-cultural community, that we live as a, as a society, as a group of people, a nation within a nation, a city within a city, a camp on the outside of the camp. And, and we present an alternative way to live that is aligned with the will of God and that exposes what is wrong in, in the dominant society or culture. So some of the benefits, number one, God's wisdom is displayed and sin is exposed by the contrast between his vision and man's vision for human society. Isn't that the way that it's supposed to be? That, that the church is able to display the wisdom of God to say, isn't, isn't this better? That when the church lives like salt in their community, when the church is like light in their community, then they, they highlight or display the wisdom of God for the world to see because the world can see the contrast. They may not always know why. Why do y'all live like that? It, it, it may bother some of them. It may anger some of them. It, it may frustrate some of them. But one way or the other, whatever their response is to it, it displays the wisdom of God by the contrast. And it exposes what's wrong with human societies by us living as an alternative to those societies. Now again, the just because the church is supposed to be this doesn't mean the church has always been this, right? So many times the world has been conformed to the world. 
And what happens when the church is conformed to the world? <laughs> then they can't be the counterculture community that they're supposed to be. What happens, what happens when in the church we don't value human life the way we're supposed to? What happens in the church where we don't honor marriage the way that we're supposed to? What happens in the church where we discriminate against people because of ethnicity? What happens in the church when we become greedy and desire to accumulate more and more and more for ourselves? Then, then we're not displaying the manifold wisdom of God. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 3. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, that is, God reconciling Jews and Gentiles in Christ, who created all things so that through the church, listen, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Every, every society is, is ruled by, both by human rulers and by unseen rulers, and the wisdom of God, the manifold, the manifold wisdom of God, meaning it has many facets his wisdom is displayed for the rulers and the powers and the authorities to see when we live as salt and light in the world. But what does Jesus say about salt that loses its salt, saltiness? It's worthless. Throw it out. It's good for nothing except to be trampled on. And nobody lights a candle and puts it under a basket. We have to be, we have to be displaying the wisdom of God by living by the Spirit, displaying the wisdom of God. Number two, believers are able to experience a foretaste of the age to come. See, this is what happens when we live as an alternative, as a countercultural community, we are able to experience the age to come right now. And that's, that's one of the frustrations about the gospel, isn't it? Is that I want it, I want it now. <laughs> I want, the, I want the resurrection now. I want eternal life now. Well, guess what? You get to start experiencing it right now. Where? In the countercultural community of the church. This is the way that it's supposed to be, that in the church we begin to experience the love and the joy and the community and the dual care for each other that, that will be everywhere and in everything in the age to come. In the age to come, everything will be saturated with love and joy and peace and everything will be perfect. And this, right here, right now, in this community, when the community is living the way that it's supposed to live, now we begin to experience that even right now in the present. We begin to experience a foretaste of what is to come in the present. Here's the way Peter says it in 2 Peter 1. He says, His, God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. And that, that begins even now, doesn't it? 
where we begin now, even, even now, to begin to experience participating in, partaking in the divine nature of God through the spirit that he's given us and escaping the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire. I mean, there's, there's obviously we're still living in the world, but I get, to, I get to step into this community. Out there, out there, we, we know how people treat one another out there. We know what happens out there. But in here, it's supposed to be this stark difference. This stark difference between the way Christians and non-Christians treat one another. There has to be. And, and if there isn't, if there isn't a stark contrast, if we're not living as a countercultural community, if we are conformed to the pattern of the world, then we, we miss out on enjoying and participating in and, and having this foretaste of what is to come right now in the present. Finally, number three, everyone is invited to participate, but no one is coerced. That's the good news, isn't it? The good news, this countercultural community, is that everyone is invited to be part of it. Everyone is invited to be part of it. If you want to be part of it, you can be part of it, but nobody is forced to be part of it. Nobody's forced to be part of it. That's why it doesn't work as a dominant culture. It doesn't work as a dominant culture. You can't force people to be part of this. You can't force people to believe in Jesus. You can't force people to be disciples of Jesus. This participation is based on faith. If you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and you spirit raised up to walk in a new life, then you can participate in this. But nobody is going to force you to be a disciple of Jesus. Paul says, we discipline each other in, in the church, but we don't discipline the people out there. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, we read this last week, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. We're, we're not, our job is not to police them and make sure the world isn't being worldly. Of course the world is going to be worldly. Our job, our job is for the church not to be worldly. The world is always going to be worldly. Our task is to make sure that the church never is, that the church is not worldly, that the church is not fleshly. Not only is that our, our best hope, it's their best hope too. If we stop, being a countercultural community, and we say, well, we're just going to force people to do things our way, or we say, uh, we're just going to do things their way, either way, and we, we decide we're going to stop being a countercultural community because we want to fit in, and we're tired of people not liking us, and, and we either want to do things their way or force them to do things our way. Not only do we sacrifice our own salvation, but we sacrifice the best chance that they have as well. The best chance that they have is for us to be who we're called to be and invite them to experience it if they will put their faith in Jesus. That's who we have to be, a countercultural community. And I understand it's hard, isn't it? Because being a countercultural community means always feeling like an outsider. But that, that's why the New Testament uses words like sojourner and exile and stranger. You don't fit in. 
This is a different way of living, a different way of being human. Read through the Sermon on the Mount and say, that's just common sense. It's not, is it? The Sermon on the Mount is it common sense. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, love your enemies. That, this isn't common sense stuff. This, nobody, nobody lives like this except the church when the church is being what the church is called to be. And if we will be who we're called to be, then we, we display the wisdom of God, and it's a benefit both to insiders and to outsiders. It benefits us because we get to participate in it, and it benefits them because they get to see it and be invited to join in, invited to participate, invited to experience what we are experiencing we could look at so many passages of Scripture, but I want to look at Hebrews 13. And I think this is especially fitting, Hebrews 13, starting in verse 1. The, the letter to the, the Hebrew audience is written to a group of people who are right on the cusp of giving in. And they're, they're being encouraged to resist, resist the pull to go back to where you were before. Resist the pull of your your former community, to draw you back in to their way of living. Resist that urge and be this countercultural people that you're called to be because this, this is what you're called to be. In fact, this is the most Hebrew thing you can do. This is the most Jewish thing you can do is to be the people of the Messiah. And he ends this letter by, by saying these things. Verse one, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. This is the way Paul talks too, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, this mutual responsibility for one another, as if we're members of the same body, take care of each other as if you're taking care of members of your own body. The way your, your hand cares for your foot, that's how you care for your brother or sister. If your brother or sister is in prison, imagine you're there because they are you. You're part of the same body. This is the community that we are called not only to be a part of, but this is the, the community that we are called to, to be to make sure that we maintain for our own salvation and for the world and to display the manifold wisdom of God. Now, just think for a second at how this is countercultural in our context. We live in probably the most radically individualistic culture that has ever been. I, I don't know that that's true, but I imagine that that's true. We are so individualistic where we, we think about ourselves first and foremost so much of the time. And, and everything around us tells us and encourages us to think about ourselves above everything. Put your own thoughts, your own feelings, your own wants, your own wishes, your own heart, your own desires above everything. Why? Well, because in our culture, we are consumers above everything else, right? And that's the best way to sell something to somebody is tell them, do whatever you want to do and we'll sell it to you. And we are called to be a countercultural community that 
sees others as being more significant than ourselves. Who lays down our life for one another the way Jesus laid down his life for us. That when our brothers and sisters are hurting, we are hurting because we're part of the same body. He says in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Every, every culture, every society, every city, every nation, every group of people has certain sexual mores, sexual ethics, sexual standards by which they say, well, this, this is sexually acceptable, this is not acceptable, this is permissible, this is not permissible. Everybody draws a line somewhere, right? Everybody draws a line somewhere. And we, we draw the line that Scripture, or at least we're supposed to draw the line that Scripture draws, but not just as a line to say this is right and this is wrong, but for us in, in this countercultural community, marriage takes on an even more significant meaning than anybody realized before. Paul says it's a profound mystery in Ephesians 5. He says that it is a display of, a, a living parable of Jesus and the church. And we have to maintain that high view of marriage and the marriage bed. That this is something that is sacred. Paul says, when he's talking to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, he says that the person who sins sexually, a sexually immoral person, sins against his own body. And he asks them, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own for you. This is incredibly countercultural, isn't it? For us to say, my, my body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I, I get the opportunity, I get the blessing of glorifying God with my body because it doesn't belong to me. My body is not a playground. My body doesn't even belong to me. It is not exclusively for my own pleasure. My body belongs to God, and it is for God's glory and honor. And how we use and restrain from sexual activity is very much a part of what we believe and about being part of this type of community. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Again, this is a radically different countercultural community that values and encourages and emphasizes and insists upon simplicity and contentment and generosity. To say, be content with what you have so that you can share with others. Be content with what you have because covetousness is idolatry. Because if you're putting your trust in how much money you've got banked, you're not putting your trust in God. And you've got to put your trust in the Lord because he will never leave you or forsake you. All of that, thieves can break in, rust can destroy, moths can destroy, but God is your rock Put your trust in him. Again, in any and every culture, imagine how this stands as a stark contrast. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith, 
Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Again, there's a lot of specifics about what they were struggling with, but in any time, we have to be a culture a counterculture that teaches each other, that roots each other in the doctrines of our shared faith so that we remember who we are and whose we are. We must, if we are going to resist the pull of the world, if we are going to resist the pull of the world, then we have to submit ourselves to teaching and instruction and education in the doctrines of our faith so that we are well-rooted in the truth. Verse 11, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach that he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Again, he's encouraging his audience, it's okay to be outside the camp. It's okay to be an outsider. It's okay to be a sojourner. It's okay to be an exile. Our Messiah was crucified outside the camp. We don't have a lasting city here. This is not our city. And I know you want to fit in. We all want to fit in. Our teenagers want to fit in. I want to fit in. You want to fit in. We all want to fit in. And it's really easy to just compromise here and compromise there and be conformed here and be conformed there so that we fit in. And he's encouraging them, don't be afraid to not fit in, to be outside the camp. It's okay because that is who we are called to be. We have to bear the reproach of being outsiders and be strengthened with the reality and the hope that our city is still coming. Our city is still yet to come. Our city hasn't yet appeared. Verse 15, through him, through Jesus then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We could go through 1 Corinthians, we could go through Ephesians, we could go through Colossians, we could go through the whole book of Hebrews. We'd see the same types of things, wouldn't we? Church isn't just something we do on Sundays and Wednesdays. Church isn't something we consume. It's not like a a restaurant we go to and and get a little bit of this or a little bit of that. It's the community to which we belong. And it it has to be a countercultural community. And these are some of the the aspects that we saw in Hebrews 13, but I think we see throughout Scripture. The church as a countercultural community. Number one, accepting mutual responsibility for one another's needs. Again, that, that... that is a countercultural idea, isn't it? That we would, regardless, regardless of family, regard, biological family, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of nationality, regardless of language, we're one body. 
and we're going to take care of each other as if, as if you're my biological uncle, as if you're my biological aunt, as if you're my biological father, as if you're my, my biological mother, as if you're my biological brother or sister. We are family, and we're going to take care of each other the way family takes care of each other. That is a countercultural idea, and it's at the heart of being the church. Number two, honoring marriage and the sanctity of the marriage bed. One man, one woman, for life. Honoring God with their sexuality and with their marriage. Number three, encouraging material and financial contentment. Again, this is radically countercultural to say this is going to be a community where we encourage everyone to be content with what you have, be free from the love of money, don't always be wanting more, and be incredibly generous with what you have. Number four, instructing one another in the doctrines of our shared faith, where we're constantly teaching and reminding each other of the truth. Number five, participating in continual praise and prayer. These are the sacrifices with which God is pleased. And they shape us. They mold us. Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making music in our hearts to the Lord. This is formational It's formational for you personally. It's formational for me personally. It's formational for us communally. We are being shaped by and shaping one another through praise so that we don't become idolatrous because you will be an idolater if you don't worship God because you will worship something. You will worship someone. And if you don't devote your whole self to him, you will be drawn into idolatry. Number six, doing good and sharing generously with others. And number seven, obeying and submitting to appointed leaders. And do we see how all seven of those things, and we could probably come up with others, but how those things stand in contrast to the way of the world, to the chaos of the world, to the the sexual immorality of the world, to the selfishness of the world, to the greed of the world, to the idolatry of the world. This is what we're called to, not only, again, not only for for glorifying God, displaying his wisdom, but for your benefit and for the benefit of the world so that we can invite our neighbors to experience this, to be part of this. But the only way we can do that is if we live this way. In every city, Christians must be content to live as a countercultural community of exiles until we see the city that is to come. Then, and only then, will we be at home. Let's pray. Father God, we look forward to and long for the day when we'll be at home, when we'll no longer be strangers and exiles and sojourners, Father, we long for that day, and we pray that Jesus comes quickly and brings that heavenly city. But Father, until then, strengthen us through your Spirit that we might be content to be exiles and strangers and sojourners here, that we might display your manifold wisdom to the rulers and the authorities and the powers that you are God and your ways are the best ways. Father, help us to enjoy and experience the benefits and the blessings of being part of such a community. And help us, Father, to invite the world 
to experience what we've experienced, to experience the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control that your spirit is pouring out on your people. Father, help us to yield to, surrender to, and align ourselves with your Holy Spirit. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.